It's good to sing of Jesus' goodness. It's good to read of it. It's good to learn of it. So let's do that now. John chapter 14. As we continue our study together as a church, John 14. And our time today will take us to verses 25 to 31. John 14, verses 25 to 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. To the best of my knowledge, I've only quit one job in my life. Now, I've stopped working at some places because it was unavoidable. I moved, I needed to go somewhere else. But probably seven or eight years ago, I was entrusted with a uh, little side job that I thought would be good for my family, but it was not good for me. Um, Essentially, it's kind of complicated, but I was working at uh, Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, and they were trying, the seminary there was trying to start an extension campus in Washington, D.C., And so they asked if I would lead the way on starting this new campus, um, trying to get it off the ground and get it basically accredited by this accrediting agency that, you know, gives schools the thumbs up. It's kind of like the sanitation grade for a restaurant. You have to have accreditation in most cases as a school. And I thought, oh, I I did seminary. I like school. (laughs) I could do this. And the, the pay seemed like it would be really good and be able to fit within my existing responsibilities. So I jumped all in on this project having no idea what I was getting into. I just thought I'd be able to make a few phone calls, organize a few classes, and just set them on their way. But an accrediting agency, they're really particular people. They didn't want to know that we were just going to try to start an extension campus in D.C., They wanted literally a 75-page document known as a substantive change proposal. Now, if you've never heard of one of these, join the crew. (laughs) I didn't know what it was either. But I got about three pages into it, 
And I literally, after about a week of prayer, had to resign. And I told the guys, this is not what I do. I can't do this. I don't know how this works. But something interesting came of this endeavor. I didn't realize it, but when a school is accredited, some organization, some entity is saying that if you go to this place, they will do what they say they do. Like, I, I just thought schools were schools. But all schools are promising to do something. They're promising to give you a certain kind of education. And for those of you who have been to college, you know you get that syllabus at the beginning, and it says, course objectives. And by the time you're finished with the course, you're supposed to be able to learn or know or do the things that they describe in the objectives. Now again, I don't know how you're wired, but for me, I just never really read those. I just wanted to know, okay, what are I, what, what's my homework assignment? Like, how do I get this over with? You know, how do I move on to the next thing? But those objectives really matter. If you're going to take a course, if you're going to pay the money, you need to know what it's doing to you, like, like what, how it's trying to shape you. That's, that's good. It's wise if you're going to step in on such an endeavor. We do that in every other area of life. If you're going to spend significant time and money in any effort in any endeavor, you want to know what the outcome will be. Even kids investing in Legos, they look at the cover of that box and they're thinking, that's what I want my Legos to look like. There's an intended outcome. You know whether or not you did it successfully by the picture on the box. Or for those of you who at the beginning of this year started a new exercise program, may it rest in peace. You saw that cut individual on the, you know, like on the, the cover of the DVD or whatever the thing was on the internet, and you're like, that's going to be me. <laughs> Those were the objectives. That's what it was supposedly promising you that you would get if you would participate in this. You, you wanted to know the outcome. It's interesting. We want to know the outcomes in most things in life. Education, a little more accidental indeed. We just think we want the diploma. But in the school of Christ... Maybe you've never realized it before, but he actually gives us concrete course objectives. There's a, there's a picture, if you will, of what he wants to happen to all those who would sit under his word. James would say it this way on Jesus' behalf, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. It was supposed to translate into action in some way. And in this particular text today, Jesus is going to describe the course objectives of his upper room discourse. We've been in this for several weeks now, and we've been kind of meandering through it, and we're hearing some good, encouraging stuff, some assurances I mean, he's told us that a way has been made to the Father for us. A place has been prepared. The Spirit is going to help us. We're going to have prayer to actually empower us for our endeavors for Him. There's all these assurances that are being given. They're they're in this private class with Jesus. It's 11 guys and their Lord, and He's just laying it out. And right at the end of this first major movement of the discourse, it's like... He springs the syllabus on them and says, oh, by the way, guys, here's what I'm trying to do with you in this class. 
This is what you need to be getting from this. Here's how you can know if you're getting a passing grade in this upper room discourse. Now, if you think that I'm making that up, I want you to just look at verses 25 through 31 again, peruse it, and notice, please, how many times Jesus refers to the things that he just said. I'll start off with a few. I'm not going to read it all over again. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. What are these things? It's the stuff he was just talking about in the upper room discourse. And then he says, In um, verse 26, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Do you see how he's referring back to everything he's been talking about? He says it again in uh, verse 28. You heard me say to you. It goes on probably two or three more times. He's referring back to all the stuff that we've been talking about. And he's saying, here's what I want you to get from this. Here's how you use this. Here's how you know if this is actually making a difference in your life. Here are the course objectives, the learning outcomes, if you will, of all those who would sit under the tutelage of Jesus in this upper room discourse. Here's how we can know, church family, whether we're just hearing this or whether we're actually going to be a doer of the Word. These are things that we're looking for, objectives, outcomes. And specifically in this passage, there are at least four. There are at least four. And it was my intention to cover all four of them at the beginning of this week. (laughs) But as I've jumped in, I realized that just with the first two, we probably need to slow down and spend a little more time not just grasping the intellectual content, but applying these things to our hearts. So what are the outcomes? What are the intended outcomes of those who would learn under Jesus in this upper room discourse? The two that we will discuss today are firmer truth, firmer truth. You're going to see that in verses 25 to 26. The second outcome is deeper peace. Deeper peace. How do you know you're getting it? How do you know if you're really grasping what Jesus is laying down? Well, you'll have a firmer truth, a deeper peace. Note the firmer truth in verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now this is fascinating because like the unique learning outcome that we find in verses 25 and 26, and hear me carefully, primarily applies to the group of guys that were originally sitting in that room. But don't worry, it still applies to you too. But you need to get that it primarily applies to the guys that are sitting in the room. How do I know that? How do you know that? Well, notice what he says that the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance and teach them. Verse 26, look at the end. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. (laughs) He's talking about to the guys that he's been speaking to, the guys that he's been teaching. He said, they're going to bring this back up. These 
are going to be some eternally significant instructions. I mean, think about what they've been going through. Jesus has been telling them everything they need to know for eternal life, and he's just told them now that he's about to be gone, and now they're going to be left on their own to remember all this stuff about eternal life. Like, what if I get it wrong? It's kind of like those of you who grew up and you had a grandmother who just had this amazing chocolate cake recipe and she didn't have like the thing written out as some grandmothers do she just knew it and you don't want to miss this chocolate cake and her health continues to decline and she makes fewer and fewer cakes and you're kind of like well what's going to happen to the recipe you know how do we get this down you you don't want to see that source of knowledge go away anyone who's lost a parent and I'm not trying to be trivial here but anyone who's lost a parent knows the heartache of, of this, this missing source of information, this guide. And the disciples especially, they're not just talking about bacon cakes. What they're talking about is the difference between heaven and hell. They're talking about eternal life. And here's been the source, and now he's going to be gone? And Jesus says, no, 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 listen. Listen, I want you to be comforted. There's a learning outcome of everything that I've been telling you, and that's this. The Holy Spirit is going to come in such a way that He will teach you everything you need to know. He's going to continue to teach you everything you need to know, and He's going to bring to remembrance everything I've said to you. You're not going to lose it. You're not going to forget it. The Holy Spirit will supernaturally come upon you and enable you to remember everything you need to know. Now, let's keep that in mind. It's everything you need to know. It's everything he's been talking about in this context. He's talking about, again, eternally significant issues. Some people will isolate this verse out and say, oh, well, I don't need to study for my final exam in high school because the Holy Spirit will teach me all things. (laughs) Or I don't need any marriage advice. The Holy Spirit teaches me all things. You can't correct me. You can't tell me what to do. The Holy Spirit's my teacher. Friends, if you're reading this honestly, you understand that all things does not include everything that you could possibly think of. I don't think that Jesus intended for the Holy Spirit to teach us the mating habits of koala bears, all the elements of the periodic table, or the history of outer Mongolia. That is not what is in the text. We have something else going on. He's talking about that which is eternally significant. They're going to need ongoing guidance to actually help them remember these things and to interpret them properly. Now, I don't know what you think of these 11 guys in the room. It'd be easy for us to just kind of assume that they were like super brilliant but if you're reading the text carefully, you come to the conclusion like, wow, they're, they're very, very ordinary, <laughs> to put it mildly. Do you ever have that experience when you're reading something that Jesus has said in the Gospels and you're like, what in the world does that mean? They had that experience too. They heard all kinds of stuff for the first time that they, they just didn't get. And that's why they're scared to death of him leaving, because they're like, we don't even get what you said the last three years. How, how are we supposed to pass this on if we don't understand it? Do you remember some concrete incidences of this? In Mark 9, they didn't understand what Jesus meant by the fact that he was going to die and rise again in three days. All of you now, interestingly, get it. 
When they heard that, they're like, what? Another one in John 2, 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Do you remember that? And I'm just reading here from John 2. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build up this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, listen to this, remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They had totally forgot. But what happened? The Holy Spirit would enable them to remember the stuff that they needed to remember. They would be able to recall the things that were essential for eternal salvation. One more instance of this, just so you can know that Again, they weren't just like super intellectuals. They were normal guys who were empowered by the Holy Spirit. John 12, 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, talking about Jesus when he says that he's going to die. But when he was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Uh, Friends, we need to grasp something like from this upper room discourse. One of the great assurances, one of the great outcomes of this entire event, of this entire speech, is that the Holy Spirit would come in such a way that you and I would have firmer truth, even more firm than the truth that they had in that very moment. You may think, man, if I would just have Jesus sitting beside me right now, I would have everything I need. You would not apart from the Holy Spirit. He's the one that has enabled you to retain anything. And here's what happened with them uniquely. They retained it to such a degree that they were inspired, like the Spirit was working through them. God was breathing through them to write down His very words. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 is all about. God breathed out His Word through the sacred writings, the holy scriptures. It was breathed out through him. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says this, No prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, listen to this, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean, friends, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in such a way that it would obliterate all of their human personalities and tendencies. I want you to get that. The divine breath, if you will, would pick up different instruments, but it would still be His breath that would be going through them. He's playing His song. He wrote the notes, but it is His breath, His power going through different instruments. That's why you like you hear Paul, for example, as one of these instruments of God, and you're like, oh, I recognize that sound. Now, Paul's like a saxophone. And you hear Peter, and you're like, oh, he kind of sounds like a trombone. <laughs> you know, you could tell when Peter's writing. You could tell where Paul's writing. It didn't obliterate their, their personalities. And yet, all the while, it was the Spirit working through them to help them recall the things that they needed to and write down the things that they needed to to communicate the divine message. Friends, what we have in the Word of God is not just uh, the inspired, I use the word inspired in quotes here, inspired work of really well-meaning men. I remember a few years ago, I'm discipling a man, a young man, he's my age, and he didn't say it's disciple, he asked me to mentor him. Um, so he had, a, he had a business mentor and he wanted a spiritual mentor. 
So I met him at Chick-fil-A when I was managing, and he was like, hey, can you, can you mentor me? I heard you used to be a pastor. I said, sure, we'll, we'll do that. And the first thing we did, I was working through this doctrinal series with him, and we talked about the inspiration of the scripture. This guy was a very gifted musician. And he's like, oh, inspiration. He says, I get inspired all the time. Like, I, I get it. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. <laughs> the inspiration that you feel as a musician is not the same as the inspiration of Scripture, which is God breathing in a special way through his chosen instruments. Like, what is happening here and what is being promised here is so unique. And friends, we need to get it because, like, there are many around us who think that we don't really have that firmer truth, but it's rather squishy. You, you hear people say things like, oh, well, the, I'm glad the Scriptures mean that to you. Well, this is what they mean to me. No, there is a divine message that's been encapsulated here. These weren't just well-meaning guys writing their sagely advice. This was the Holy Spirit overcoming them and communicating through them. You get that? And the end result of that is something better. Here's our learning objective. You should walk away from the upper room discourse being assured that you have firm truth that you know exactly what it is that you need to know. Friends, this is supernatural. God has worked in a special way. He, he has enabled them. He has radically invaded in such a way that men would write what God wanted them to say. And so, friends, we understand that what we have in the Scriptures is God's Word. We have firm truth. That's what is being promised here. But there's one implication I want to bring out for you. Even though the Spirit is working uniquely in the lives of the apostles, He is also working implicitly in the lives of all those who follow Jesus. This learning objective that applies specifically to the apostles applies implicitly to us. And here's how you know it. Have you ever been reading the Bible and you're reading the the thing that you've read 20 times before and then all of a sudden it makes sense. Or all of a sudden, it seems beautiful. Or all of a sudden, you're like, I need to do this. Why haven't I been doing this? Where's this verse been my whole life? You know what that is, friends? That's not the inspiring work of the ministry. That's unique. That's the illuminating work of the ministry, of the Spirit, excuse me. The illuminating work of the Spirit. He's turning the light on. That's what illuminate means. He turns the light on. And you turn the light on, you're like, oh, I should have gone this way, not that way. Or the light gets turned on, you're like, oh, that's beautiful. I never saw that before. I didn't see it. Like, it's an extension of of what we have now in light of what Jesus has done in sending us the Spirit. It's awesome. It's a great learning outcome. You sign up for this class, you understand what Jesus has done for you, even in his absence, you have the Holy Spirit working within you. And I want to remind you of something, friends. What we see here is that the Spirit works uniquely through the words of Jesus. The Spirit was was not going to provide some new crazy information. He was going to bring to remembrance the things that had already been taught by the Lord. Let me say it this way. I'll keep it this basic. The Spirit works through the Scriptures. The Spirit works through the Scriptures. John Brown, such a basic name. 
He was a um, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian expositor. He gives us some great, a great warning I think we should keep in mind practically. I'll repeat it a couple times so you can get it. No need to write it down. Just listen carefully. Our prayers for the Spirit to enable us to understand saving truth are vile hypocrisy if we do not read and hear with attention that word which was dictated by him. It's kind of long. I'm going to say it again. Our prayers for the Spirit to enable us to understand saving truth or vile hypocrisy if we do not read and hear with attention that word which was dictated by him. What does that warning mean? How many of us have been in the position or either know someone who's been longing for the Spirit to speak to them in some special way, and yet they totally ignore the pages of Scripture? Like, they're looking for this, this hidden bit of knowledge, some, some supernatural, special kind of revelation, while they're already ignoring the basic and clear things that the Holy Spirit has already revealed. He says, Brown says, that's vile hypocrisy. The firmer truth that we have is, yes, through the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. This was the special way that He would work. I heard one old preacher put it this way, with the Word alone, we dry up. With the Spirit alone, we blow up. With the Spirit and the Word, we grow up. Friends, I'm not telling you that the Word is the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is a person who works through the Word. So if you're looking to know His mind and benefit from His ministry and grasp that firmer truth, just keep exposing your heart to His revealed Word. We know all that we need to know about eternal life because of what the Spirit has done. There's your first learning outcome, firmer truth. Here's the second, deeper peace. If you're sitting in this school with Jesus... You're listening to what he's saying. If you're picking up what he's laying down, you're not only going to grasp that you have a firmer truth, but you also will grasp that you have a deeper peace. Look again at verse 27. Just note the first sentence there. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. These are awesome words, friends. Jesus here is speaking um, like the executor of an estate. Like, I want you to think of a, a wealthy relative that's got like a ton of money and a ton of cool stuff and property, and, and before he, he dies, he's actually just giving everybody a preview of what's going where. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to leave to you this, I'm going to leave to you that. Like, the term leave with you is the same term that's used to uh, bequeath an inheritance, to to let something go to another after death. So it's like Jesus rolls out the will here and he says, I leave to you peace. And not just any peace, by the way. My peace. My peace I give to you. The word peace is often confused. 
Like sometimes we just think of peace as the cessation of hostilities. The kids aren't fighting in the car anymore. The two nations aren't actively engaged in war. The husband and wife are speaking calmly to one another. Like, peace is just this kind of minimalist thing. And yet, the biblical conception of peace, beginning in the Old Testament all the way through to the New, is something more holistic. It's bigger. It's fuller. It isn't just the absence of hostility, but it's the the presence of well-being. Things are whole, things are good, things are well. So, it isn't just there's no problems, it actually means that it's all good. It's all good. Will you engage with me for a moment as we just kind of like walk through the biblical storyline to get a better understanding of peace? Do you understand that at creation, at creation, there was no need for there to be some special giving of peace because they already had it. When God originally created the world, what did He say six times over? It is good. That's peace. It was good. They were good with God, and they were good with one another. Everything was whole. Everything was complete. Everything was as it should be. And yet then in chapter 3, you move from creation to rebellion, and now we have the absence of peace. I mean, there is a lack of peace with mankind and his relationship with the created world. There's a lack of peace with mankind and his relationship with his wife. There's a lack of peace of mankind, most importantly, with his relationship with God. Like now everything's broken. Everything's in discord. There's a problem. And as we continue to read through the pages of the Old Testament, uh, we see a chapter that I would title Remediation. Like there's this attempt to get peace. Like, they they hoped that they would get it through a certain king who would get it and provide it for them, and yet none of the kings could ever fully secure this peace on their behalf. Those prophets would come around, and they would preach this message of one day God giving peace to the earth, promising that God would send a special one who would finally secure this peace, and they, but they would always look for it. They, they would hope for it. In fact, they so longed for it that their greeting to one another would eventually become Shalom, peace. They wanted it so desperately that they would say it to one another every time they spoke. Shalom. They were praying it in every conversation. And yet they never had it. They couldn't get it. Until the reconciliation that took place when Christ, the Son of God, entered into the human realm to secure the peace of mankind that had so constantly evaded them. Jesus would do two things to secure this peace. One, he would live obediently and righteously in such a way that God would be pleased. And he would credit that to all those who believe in them, in him. And then he would pay for all the penalties for the rebellion against him, satisfying peace. His righteous life, his atoning death, secured peace. What is it that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1? That he would come making peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus fixed the peace problem. He he would secure it 
for all those who would believe in Him. And rising again from the dead three days after that death would be proof positive that God indeed endorsed everything that He was coming to do. This was the one who had actually secured peace, and all who would trust in Him would enjoy this life of peace with God forever. This is an amazing thing. Peace had finally been secured. It was real. It was there. It was final. And like any good inheritance, like any good inheritance, like any true inheritance, the benefits did not transfer to the intended until death. Jesus had to die. He died to secure our peace, and now it would be realized in all those who would place their faith in Him. Romans 5.1 says it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the peace that he's talking about here is primarily a relationship with God. When everything is right between you and Almighty God, what else matters? Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave you that kind of peace. And of course, he would one day finalize it. The story of peace moves from reconciliation to finalization. When Jesus comes back to physically rule and reign over this earth and impose the peace that he had purchased, uh, as far as the curse is found, the old hymn says. There will be joy, there will be peace, there will be goodness. But in the meantime, he has done what no one else could do. He has secured our ultimate peace by giving us a right relationship with God. God is for us, friends. Things are well. They're good. I love that in the singing today. <laughs> and things are good. There's the goodness of Jesus. God is for us. See, like right now, things are good between us and God. He's already given us this peace, but it's not just any peace. I said it was a deeper peace. Deeper peace. Notice the verse again. Look back at your Bibles. The second sentence about this peace, not as the world gives do I give to you. Notice, he's contrasting the kind of peace that the world could give with the kind of peace that he gives. You need to think carefully about this, friends, because sometimes when we're trying to understand a word, it's good to know what it is and what it's not. <laughs> what, it is it, what is it not? Um, I've got two categories in mind here. Uh, one would have been primarily understood by the original audience. The other, I think, fits us in our contemporary context today. When Jesus is saying it's not like the peace the world gives, he probably has in mind what I would call peace through subjugation. Subjugation, sorry, four syllables, but you get it. Like when you force your will upon another. I don't know if, if you get it here, but um, if you're a student of Roman history, these words were spoken at the height of this unique period, you, you, maybe you remember this from high school, of Pax Romana, Roman peace. I mean, historians would consider this to be like the gilded age of the Roman Empire. It was at its best, beginning with Octavian's defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra like supposedly this new golden age had been brought into existence. And so, the Roman propaganda of the time is that we have finally brought peace to the earth, Pax Romana. 
They would try to, they would try to like, prove this in all kinds of crazy ways. I mean, it truly was uh, a political campaign. Because every historian who looks back at that time acknowledges that it was bloody and it was violent and it was not everything it was cracked up to be. And yet the Romans were trying desperately to convince everyone that they had finally got peace. The first one is uh, Augustus. So he's the first guy to bring this thing. And what he would do on three separate occasions is go and close the gates of Janus. The gates of Janus were supposedly like the place that contained all hostility and ire and difficulty. And when those gates would be closed, it was a symbol to the entire nation that there, were no, there was no war. Things were well. But you know what the funny thing is about Augustus, the guy who claimed to achieve such peace? He had to close the gates three times. Those things just wouldn't stay closed. He would supposedly get peace, and then they'd open them back up again, recognizing that another war had broken out somewhere. In fact, the Roman officials were so concerned about trying to convince everyone that there was peace that after he closed the gates the third time, they said, you know what, we're just going to build this this big uh, monument, and maybe this monument will convince everybody that we finally convinced, uh, that we finally achieved this peace. You can find that monument today, by the way, pieces of it in the Louvre in Paris. And what it shows, I mean, it's massive. What it shows is all these people dressed up all nice and with their little kids beside them. It's a very peaceful-looking thing. It's this box, and it was supposed to be this tribute to their peace. But it didn't secure any peace. In fact, I found this interesting. One Roman historian said it this way. The volume of the Cambridge Ancient History for the years AD 70 to 192 is called the Imperial Peace, but peace is not what one finds on its pages. It is filled with the existence of war and intimidation and violence and fear. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I know that Rome is advertised to bring peace, but I'm going to bring a different kind of peace, not just violence not just imposing my will upon another, but how did he secure peace? He would endure and suffer violence to himself so that men and women could have peace with God. It's not like a peace that the world gives. The world claims this all the time. This subjugation, I would borrow some language from another Christian author. It's a... It's peace-breaking, really. It's just making other people do what you want them to do, but there's no real peace there. In our modern times, though, we, we don't do with the peace-breaking as much as we uh, suffer from what I would call, or excuse me, what another author would call peace-faking, <laughs> where we pretend that we have peace. Like, we've, we've given up on the idea of being able to force it, so now we just fake it. You know the old saying, fake it till you make it. Like, that is the thing of the day. We, we just say, all right, well, we're just going to push in here, and like, our world is such a great place. Uh, what is it, this tendency that we have with our own social media profiles, for example, to only take the pictures of the happy, pleasant times? The peaceful sunset. Your house when it's actually clean. You want to know something really funny? I'm going to... Okay, yeah, she, she gave me the heads up, I can do this. We took our family Easter picture this year, like right after Easter. So this year, wow, it's already a year. Last year. <laughs> we go home, 
and it's like blazing hot, and I'm like, kids, we got to get this picture. They're tired. I'm tired. They're hungry. I'm hungry. I mean, it's nasty. <laughs> and we probably took 25. I mean, it was a, a straight up like selfie kind of thing. You know, there's seven of us, and I'm trying to selfie it in our backyard, and the kids aren't looking, and somebody's looking off, and I'm yelling. And you know what was really, we finally got one with six of the seven people looking. (laughs) But you want to know what the reality of it is? If you have an iPhone, it does that live thing. (laughs) If you want, I mean, if you just want a great laugh, see what was happening up the three seconds before that picture actually took place. And is that not our lives? We present the snapshot, but we're not giving people the live look, and we're like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. It's chill. It's good. I think part of this is expressed in the substance abuse problem that is even prevalent among Christians. Let me be careful here. I'm not a medical professional. I understand that certain substances are advantageous at certain times of life. I'm not here just trying to imply that any mood-altering medication or herb or whatever is supposedly sinful, so please don't hear me say that. But I do know, I find it interesting at least, that we live in the supposed happiest, healthiest place on the planet, and 60% of the sales at the local Costco are for alcohol. They make close to a million dollars a day, and they're selling $600,000 a day of alcohol. Somebody's pretty miserable. I've never, I mean, again, I'm not that old. Maybe this has always, always been around. But the obsession that people have with things like alcohol and CBD and Delta 8 and Delta 9 and the legalization of pot and marijuana and things of that nature, just show me somebody's not happy. Somebody's not experiencing peace. And what they're trying to do is fake it. And so in light of this absence of peace, we understand that there is a peace that's being offered by the world, but that is not what Jesus is providing. This is something different. It's not just conquering everybody and making them shut up and sit down. And it's not dulling our senses to such a point that we are blind to the realities of the broken world around us. It's something different. Objectively, it is a right relationship with God. And I want to give this clarification, please, and give you some time to unpack it. But I want you to understand that this piece is not a feeling, but a fact that can be felt. The peace that Jesus is offering here, one, is not a feeling, two, but it is a fact, three, that can be felt. Why do I say that it's not a feeling? Because Jesus doesn't say that it's a feeling. The Bible describes peace in objective, not subjective terms. Objectively, things are right between you and God. Like, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis put it in God in the Dock. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy, we could add, to give me peace. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. You, you get that Jesus promised like hard times, hardship, persecution, difficulty for all those who belong. He's not talking about you're just going to have this sweet, easy feeling. It's, it's, not, it's not first and foremost a feeling. It's, it's more a, a fact. It's the peace of a pacified conscience. It's not just wrath satisfied, but righteousness provided. Those things are true objectively of us. And one said it this way, I like this. He loves me as I am, though he will not leave me as I am. Some of you need to hear that this morning. If you are in Christ, he loves you as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. It's not a feeling, but a fact. But it seems like it can be felt. Look at the last part of verse 27. Notice how Jesus adds an additional command. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, I have a question for you. If Jesus is saying that I'm going to leave you peace, my peace I give to you, why in the wide world does he have to also say, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid? It seems to me that one could still have this peace that is non-negotiably going to be provided to all who are in Christ Jesus. And yet at the same time, still allow the heart to be troubled and fearful. Friends, this shows me that the peace here isn't just an automatic feeling. It's an applied one. It's a fact that has to be applied to the the situation of our lives. In fact, this is the second time that Jesus has said in this very discourse, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. And if you're a careful student, I just want you to recognize something that I don't think Jesus here, excuse me, retract, I know that Jesus here is not saying that we're not allowed to feel unpleasant emotion. The word troubled, we've looked at it several times in the book of John, it was first used to talk about the troubling of the waters when the angel would supposedly come and stir it. Just think raging ocean versus quiet river. Troubled. It's troubled. You start to apply that to the emotions, and you're just talking about the upsetting of the emotions, the churning of the emotions. Jesus is not forbidding the churning of emotions. You understand, right, that he felt emotion intensely on several occasions. In fact, this very same word, troubled, is applied to Jesus at least three other times in the Gospel of John. He felt trouble. Your Lord felt the upsetting of emotion, the the churning of emotion. That is not what he is forbidding. When did he feel it, by the way? He felt it at the death of his friend Lazarus. It says that he was troubled in his spirit. There's nothing wrong with that. There was nothing wrong with, with the feeling of emotion. When he knew that Judas was going to betray him, the breaking and the rending of a relationship that troubled him in his spirit. That's what the text says. When he contemplated his own death in John chapter 12, it says he was troubled in his spirit. When Jesus says here, let not your hearts be troubled, he's not calling you to be the ultimate stoic, like the Iron Man, the person who never experiences any kind of emotion. 
Notice what he adds to it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's not just the experiencing of emotion, but it's the experiencing of emotion stirred with this cowardice, this fear that there's some other ultimate out there. That there's something greater than God that could threaten our well-being. Uh, the, the word cowardice or fear that's used here, let not your heart be afraid, is the same one that's used in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, of cowardice, but of power and love and a sound mind. What was Timothy's problem? As you read the book carefully, you understand that as a young man, he was intimidated by the other individuals around him, especially the, the older supposedly wiser teacher folks in the congregation. And he was saying, you're going to have to take a firm, bold stand. Your ultimate is God. It is not these other individuals. What Jesus here is forbidding is not the feeling of emotion, but the, the, the succumbing to the threat of an alternate ultimate, some other authority, some other person or entity or circumstance that would actually be greater than the peace that you enjoy with the Lord Jesus or with the Father through the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. He said, don't experience this. This is what you want to avoid. And so this peace then, listen to this, friends, and we're almost done. It has to be applied. You've got to to take the facts. Here's how you know if you grasp what Jesus is teaching in this upper room discourse. You take the objective fact of peace and you apply it to your troubled heart so that you can feel it. (laughs) It's a fact that you translate into feeling. It is not just the perfect circumstances in all times. In just a few moments, we're going to read or sing together. It is well with my soul. When I was contemplating the final song, I I was just trying to read the text carefully again. And you know how you sing some songs your entire life and you've like never thought about them? You just sing them? I honestly, like I had to do internet research on the first verse of the song because I'm like, what what do the first words even mean? When peace like a river attendeth my way. Like what is it? Attendeth? I don't think I've ever used that word in normal discourse. But then I realized, oh, you just have to keep reading to get the point. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. He's contrasting two times, like two, two life events. Sometimes the heart, I mean the circumstances, if you will, are like a peaceful river. Sometimes they're like a raging ocean. And in both of those times, he says, whatever my lot whether it's the peaceful river or the raging ocean, thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. Notice that. You've taught me to say this. I have to say it out loud. I have to be reminded that things are well. They're well with my soul. Like when it's raging and when it's calm, like things are still good. Friend, this this truth must be applied. It is something that we must grasp and use in our lives. I leave you with this. There is a principle and there is the practical. The principle I think we know well. The Scriptures, inspired by God, 
Remember that we have a firmer truth? The firmer truth tells us that things are right between us and God if we're trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. That's a principle. That's a fact. That does not change. Remember the old song we used to sing as children? I think we should sing it more frankly. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know that? For the Bible tells me so. Do I know that Jesus loves me if I'm making as much money as I want to make and if I'm as healthy as I want to be and things are as good with my extended family as I want them to be? Like, is that when things are good? Is that when Jesus loves me? No, Jesus loves me. How do I know that? For the Bible tells me so. It's a fact. I'm trusting in what's already been written down. There's a principle that's there. You get that, right? Like That's the piece that he's leaving. It's principle. But you're probably asking, well, how do I apply that? Because I know that's true. I mean, for all of you who are in Christ, every one of you who are a member of this church, if I were to ask you, true or false, are things right between you and God? I'd hope we'd get 100% true. But why do we not feel that? Why does it seem so absent? There's the practical. We have to apply this to our situation and not let other things speak into us. Let me give you three expressions of how we can practically assure ourselves of this objective standing in Jesus. One, I'm just using other people's language here. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. I hate saying that almost because we say it so much. But we got that term from this, uh, this, this Welsh preacher uh, named Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've never read his stuff, I recommend it. He has this interesting book called Spiritual Depression. I'm pausing there because some of you may need to grasp that title, Spiritual Depression. It's written to people who feel this lowness of soul whose emotions don't align with what they know to be true. I commend it to you. I think the most revolutionary passage in spiritual depression is when he's doing this like exposition of Psalm 42, and he actually comments that, that the author there, David, is not just listening to himself, but he's speaking to himself. And so, Lloyd-Jones goes on to, to talk about how when we wake up in the morning, all of a sudden our mind's racing. It just starts talking to us, telling us all these things, like this is off, this is wrong, oh, we need to do that, this is messed up, right? You're, 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 it's just running. Anybody ever experienced that? He says, at that point you're listening to yourself. He says, but what the author is doing here in Psalms is he's speaking to himself. He's saying, why are you cast down on my soul? Remember God, remember his benefits. Friends, we need to proactively preach the gospel to ourselves. We wake up every day thinking things are off, things are broken, things are messed up. And yet we just have to speak truth. We've got to remind ourselves that things are good between us and God. And I'm not trying to be moralistic and saying that everybody has to have a 20-minute devotional time before they wake up in the morning. But may I just advocate, that's why we try to begin our day with the Word of God, so that we can speak to ourselves through the day and not just listen. We need to speak to ourselves the gospel. That's how you apply that peace. Yeah, the 
The bank account may be low. Some of those extended family relationships may be tough. Your emotions may be all over the place, but you can lean in on truth. You tell yourself, those who are justified by faith have peace with God. Not only do you need to preach to yourself, but can I add another practical suggestion? You need to let others preach to you. Preach may be the wrong word because that makes it sound like, subscribe to my podcast. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. But friends, sometimes we go so internal, we go so individual on this preaching the gospel to ourselves, like we forget about the resource that is the body of Christ when they speak truth into us. I told you guys um, a few weeks ago that I've been reading Life Together, and I came across this line I thought was really powerful, very helpful. Again, I have greater concerns with the author, but that this book in particular is of good service. But he convinces us that in the Christian community, we actually need collaborators. We need other people speaking the truth into our lives, not just the preacher, but other members. And, and just hear these words, so helpful. He says, God has put this word, talking about the word of Christ, into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek him and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. You ever know what it's like to try to preach the gospel to yourself and you just, you're not believing it? (laughs) Like, man, this is a tough sell. But when somebody else comes alongside you and says, This is true of you in Christ. I have noticed these good things that I've seen the Spirit doing in your life. Like how that strengthens you and how that encourages you. It's not because it's another person. It's because it's the Word of Christ. It speaks louder. We need that. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to have the gospel preached to us by others. That reminds us of this peace. And then finally, we should participate in those ordinances that remind us of our peace with God. Friends, I say this not just because we have communion tonight as a church. I say it because it's the fact. Jesus actually gave us physical, tangible signs that should assure us of our right relationship with Him. But just the other day, we saw four people baptized In a tactile way, they were plunged under the water, brought back up again. And what was that going to be a permanent reminder for them of? That they have died to their old life, their sins have been washed away, they've been risen again in Christ, and they are alive. It's not just words, but it's an action. And you know what the communion meal is supposed to be, 1 Corinthians 11? You're coming to the table of the king, reminded that all is good. All is good. (laughs) I don't know how it is in your home, 
But I know just from experience, from others that I've talked to, um, a family dinner should be a warm and receiving thing, but it's not always. Sometimes they're endured and they're cold as ice. Sometimes they don't even happen. I'm like, I can't even eat with you. But the table of the king, it's always open. Every time you show up, you're reminded, body broken for you. Every time you show up, you're reminded, blood shed for you. It's an assurance that there's peace with God. All is well. And I think sometimes we just treat it like it's just the thing that Christians do. No, that is the reminder of peace. Things are good. And so, friends, my prayer for us is that we would take this firmer truth and with it experience a deeper peace. How do you know if you're, you're getting the lessons that God himself is laying down? It's very simple. Firmer truth, deeper peace. Have you so taken the truth of the word that you experience this peace in your life despite the challenges that are circling around you? I'm going to pray. That'll close this out. I'm going to pray. I'm going to close this out. And then we're going to sing. I want you to do something when we're singing. We're testifying out loud. We're reminding ourselves of the gospel, that things are well with our soul. Do that. Testify. Remind yourself. Speak to yourself. But listen to this. Speak it to others. Testify to them that things are well with your soul because of what Christ himself has accomplished. After that, I'll give a closing reminder of benediction, and we'll be done for the day. Father in heaven, We praise you for the firmer truth that you've provided through your spirit in inspiring the sacred scriptures and then illuminating them in our hearts on account of what Jesus has done and accomplished. Thank you for the truth. And we pray that this truth, this truth of peace with God, would be experienced in our hearts. It's real, it's there, it's it's a fact. And yet, we, we chase such strange and insufficient substitutes or bring us back to the objective reality that all is well with our souls because of what Christ has done. Do that as we testify in song. Do it as we participate in communion tonight as a church family. Do it through the conversations in between. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.